You're listening to the Young Baptist Podcast, a show that exists to call believers to committed faithfulness to God's Word, to equip Christians by answering the tough questions that need to be asked, and to challenge churches on everything that distracts us from the beauty and glory of Christ. Now, here's your hosts, Clay Maynard and Josh Johnson. Josh, how are you doing, man? I'm good, Clay. Thank you for asking. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How has how has the adjustment been coming up to church at 2 p.m. instead of our normal uh, small group time at 4? It's been a little different, but I guess it's nothing out of the ordinary. I don't take a nap on Sundays. Really? No, I make coffee or my wife and I go to Starbucks and that's that. Yeah, so we've been coming up to the church to work on this podcast for a couple of weeks now as we get things prepared. And we've been coming up at two instead of our normal small group time at four. And so we come quite a bit earlier yes, than and, we usually and do. Bless our wives' hearts for just oh, for their great patience and endurance. Yeah. And this adjusting affliction. Yeah, adjusting <laughs> to what we're doing here. And Josh was kind enough to bring some fresh pour over coffee That's for me right. today. So that was huge. I don't often take a nap on Sundays, but I love to when I can. Yeah. Sunday afternoon, that's like the nap time. Yeah, of, I think so. Of any day of the week. You want to nap? Make it Sunday afternoon. Yeah, especially for Christians who are in church on Sunday morning. They really like to Yeah, those go Christians that. that are right with God. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have that Sabbath in there, right? Exactly. But I find that I end up being excited about going over my discipleship material for for when we do our groups on Sunday nights and taking that opportunity as well to catch up on music for the church and things like that. So like you, as much as I love napping, I don't really get to do it very often on Sunday afternoons. Well, usually, like you said, it's review, it's prepare for what's coming up. For me, that's kind of when I try to read. Mm. My reading is really, it's really suffered recently, but that's when I try to take some time to read. That's and, a great idea. I might have to start reading more on Sunday afternoons. Yeah, just Michaela usually takes a nap. I usually read and then we go get coffee and come to church and we're ready to go. Nice. Ready to go. Well, Clay, let's go ahead and uh, jump right into today's content. We want to talk about the gospel. And and Clay, why do we want to start with the gospel? Well, we want to start the podcast with the main thing. Christians can actually get distracted from this. So if your Christian life or your church isn't making the gospel the focus, then it's out of focus. Uh, it's not what it should be. And it causes all sorts of problems when churches and our Christian lives become about anything else. And we want the podcast to focus primarily on the effects of the gospel in our life. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're going to get into second tier, third tier issues, and we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say and what biblical principles apply. But really when it boils down to it, the important topic that we never want to veer far from is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you've probably heard this said, but the gospel is not just the diving board. Um, it is also the swimming pool. <laughs> so we sometimes mistakenly think that the gospel is just uh, a way of getting out of hell. And that's just not true. I mean, it's the gospel is certainly the beginning of our relationship with God. So the gospel goes farther than that. It's not just for salvation. It is the entirety of the Christian life. The gospel is the person and the work of Christ. So we never graduate from the gospel. It, right, and I like to think of it this way. Without the gospel for salvation, you have no hope. 
without the gospel for sanctification, you have no change. You're, you're needy for the gospel. You desperately need the gospel. We have a couple verses we want to take as our text verses today, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Clay, you want to read those for us? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And these two verses, they really emphasize two sides to the gospel coin. The power of God to salvation, the revelation of the righteousness of God to those who have been justified so that they might live by faith. The gospel is what we need for salvation, but also sanctification. Yeah, it says, doesn't just say we are saved by faith. It says the just live by faith. So that brings us to the question, if, if we know that the gospel is the beginning of our relationship with God and that it's this important, we need to start with, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel, you got to go all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Genesis. Uh, you've got to start off with why we even need the gospel. And that's because of the, the sin in, in our lives, because of original sin. Genesis chapter number three, we see... The, the very original sin, we see man being separated from God because of sin. And now that is our condition. That is where we are at, each and every one of us. Romans 5, 12, whereas by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all of sin. Romans three ten. it's uh, quoting Psalms, but I think it says it very well. Three ten through 12, actually, it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Job 15 says it this way, how much more abominable and filthy is man, which drinketh iniquity like water. That's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> right there in your face. It's and then, pretty heavy. So, uh, Solomon even said, for there's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We all have this sin nature because of Adam and Eve's decision to rebel against God and to, and and because of that, plunge us all into, into sin. Yeah, and so this is pointing all of these scriptures, establishing the doctrine of original sin or the, the doctrine of the depravity of man as some Bible teachers have called it. It's just that basic story you heard in Sunday school, Adam and Eve, they were given instructions. They willfully chose wrong. And we've all inherited their sin nature as a result of it. Some people are upset about that. They don't like that because of Adam's sin, we all suffer, but we have ratified that choice every single day. It's not like we just unfairly get Adam's sin imputed to us. No, we, we have ratified that choice by committing sin every single day. Each day. Anyone who doesn't believe in the depravity of man, all you have to do is have a child. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard there are two kinds of people, those who do not believe in the depravity of man and those who have children. <laughs> so my toddler does this thing where he walks up to my wife when he doesn't like something he's being told and he squeezes her leg. He's like one and a half, squeezes her leg as hard as he can and he grunts and he strains and he's trying to hurt her. Now, of course, he can't hurt her. And so we just laugh it off, basically. But put that attitude in an adult person and you see you are born with a depraved nature. So, and even our, a lot of our good works, you know, Romans 2 goes into the fact that even a lot of our good works 
that we do often to make ourselves feel like we're good people. On closer examination, they're not as altruistic as we want to believe they are. Even our good works, I mean, we've tried to convince ourselves that they're good works, but we still fall short even in those works and sin. That's why scripture says our righteousness is as filthy rags. You look at the good things we've done and we, you, on closer examination, well, there's pride, there's the desire for status, there's the desire for people to think well of us or for position or for self-glory. So even the good things we do are, are undergirded by pride and sin. Well, and to what you said about Romans 2, there's not a human being alive that can read Romans 1, 2, or 3 and come out thinking, hey, I've got it all together. I'm actually a pretty good person. Paul paints a pretty bleak picture. There is no one that is righteous through those those three chapters there. Yeah, you read it. He says, there is none that seeketh after God. Right, and because of this sin that has destroyed each of our lives, now, going back to the garden, man is separated from God. When it says that uh, in Romans 5, 12, death passed upon all men, when, when, when Adam sinned, all men died. Now, in the garden that day, there was not Adam and Eve's physical death, but there was death as biblically speaking, separation from God. Uh, it's not, when we talk about death in the Bible, it's not just physically, it's talking about separation. It's a spiritual death. And when man sinned, God, God cannot fellowship with sin. In, in no capacity can God fellowship with sin. And so God and man were separated because of man's sin. Yeah, there's the holiness of God. That's what we're talking about. And they were removed from the garden. That separation is, is shown by God's removing them from perfection. Removing, removing them from the garden. And that's punishment for sin. That's what it boils down to. Because God is holy, sin has to be punished. We all know this, even though we don't like it when it's us that are the sinners, but we all know we have this innate sense of what justice is. We know that when wrong is done to us, that there should be some sort of recompense. There should be some sort of punishment. Things should be made right. And as profoundly deficient as our sense of holiness and justice is, can you only imagine what the sins of the world look like to a perfectly holy God? Mm. So that brings us to the lamb in Genesis chapter three, which is the beginning of the story. You, I've heard some people say you could see the Bible as the story of the lamb. And it shows up right there in Genesis chapter three, right after original sin. And I mentioned earlier that on that day, Adam and Eve did not die, but there was death that day. Because sin still has to be taken care of. Sin still has to be to be judged and paid for. And on that day, like you're you're saying, there was a sacrifice for sin. Right. They didn't die, but something still had to die. That's really just the beginning, really the the setting the direction, if you will, for the rest of the entire Old Testament with animal sacrifices. Yeah, it's because the lamb was a temporary substitute it did not permanently take away their sin. So they had to die spiritually. God was able to delay their physical death. He told them the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. And they did die spiritually, but he was able by amazing grace to delay their physical death with a temporary innocent substitute. And right there in the garden is the very first time we see God displaying grace towards human beings right there in the garden. Not only did he kill that animal, but he, he, covered the man and the woman mm. and and their their shame their nakedness through that very sacrifice god covered that and took care of 
their sin in that way, but it wasn't the only sacrifice nope. that have to be it made. Could, it couldn't permanently take care of the problem. Yeah, how amazing is it that God's grace shows up right away? It doesn't take any time at all, right after the moment of original sin when they're hiding from God. You, you talked about that spiritual death. They're running from God. He hasn't pronounced any judgment. They're psychologically broken. They're emotionally broken. They're relationally broken. They're hiding, they're running. And God immediately starts moving in grace mm-hmm. for the redemption that he had planned. It's such an amazing story. And you see this pattern throughout the Old Testament. Josh, you've often said that the Old Testament is a bloody yeah. history of God bringing innocent substitutes in to deal with the sin problem that man was having. And so you see this in Abraham's story. They sacrifice a ram uh, in place of Isaac. That's another what we call narrative typology of the story of the lamb. We see the sacrificial system that's set up for Israel. Um, We see the, before that, we see the Passover. The Passover literally was the first time God said, kill a lamb, put their blood on the doorposts and the angel of death will come through and will pass over you and spare you if you have the blood covering. And so it didn't have to do with the goodness or badness of the residents of the house. It had to do with the presence of the blood which covered them and saved them. And so we see that sacrificial system is set up for Israel, again, whereby an innocent lamb becomes the substitute to take the penalty of sin. Uh, And so this is a type, it's a picture, but it is also what God had in place as a temporary solution. And you see how temporary it really is when you read through the books of Leviticus, even kind of into the end of Exodus, where you keep reading, and he atones for sin for the people for the year where he atones for the sins of the people. When I read through the book of Leviticus, I can't help but just read it and think, Jesus is so much better. You can, if you, Everyone rags on Leviticus. And yes, Leviticus is very challenging to read because of the content. And it's just like, oh my goodness, all these laws. But when you read Leviticus, read it through the lens of, there is a greater lamb coming who's to be sacrificed. Yes. Yeah, so you have that narrative typology all through the Old Testament. The story of the lamb, the the picture of what's coming. You have the sacrificial systems and then you have the prophets themselves foretelling of Christ under the law. Um, Isaiah 53 may be the most prolific of these prophecies. Um, Isaiah 53, I'll just pick up in verse four. It's foretelling of Christ. It says, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see that that language laid on him. That's the story of that innocent sacrifice. Verse seven says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. There Isaiah is making the direct connection between the coming Messiah who was gonna redeem mankind and this type, this temporary solution that they had been using up until this point, which was the innocent lamb. And Hebrews 10 tells us that that was a shadow of things to come, not the very image of the things uh, as 
the author of Hebrews says, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there into perfect. It was just a foreshadowing of, as we've been saying, the greater lamb, the lamb of God that would come to take the sin of the world. Which brings us to the person of Christ himself. So they, there's all this narrative typology. There's the sacrificial system. There's the prophets foretelling of his coming. And then he shows up, Jesus shows up, and the doctrines of Christ are very important, which are, first of all, that he was born of a virgin. Scripture tells us that she had never been with anyone, and yet she's miraculously conceived, Scripture says, by the Holy Ghost. And then he lives what is a sinless life. And it's important to note that he lived a perfectly sinless life. Yeah, well, we often jump right over that. We jump from he was born of a virgin. Um, when we're recording this, we're entering the Christmas season as we record this right now. But so we often think about his birth and then we skip straight to his death, which those are, those are vastly important things, but we often skip right over the sinless life. You know, as Christians, Peter tells us to look at Jesus and to follow his steps. This is why his sinless life is so important. And it's not to minimize how amazing his birth is. I mean, Matthew one tells us they'll call his name Emmanuel, which is, being interpreted as God with us. But that very statement, Emmanuel, God with us, it's not just miraculous at his birth. It's miraculous throughout his entire earthly life. And we, I think sometimes we, we're like, oh, wow, God came in the flesh and was born and then he died. No, hold on a second. God lived in the flesh on the earth for 33 and a half years and he never sinned one time. Yeah, this is super important. You t- we talk about sanctification, which is we'll get, more to later, but what we're talking about is not um, slinging mud and seeing what sticks. We're talking about the person of Christ. It's an observable life that we can study through the scriptures and can be revealed to us what our life should look like. We're following Jesus. And what that means is living a life that looks more and more like his. We're supposed to be made into his likeness. And we can have hope and encouragement because the Bible tells us in Hebrews we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Christ has been there. He's done that. He's, he's experienced it and he came out victorious in his perfectly sinless life. Hebrews spends a lot of time on Christ's life. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He did everything you and I did. That's so important because we need to know that he lived the life we should have lived. When we talk about substitution. He takes our place, Christ in our place. It also means that we are beneficiaries of his record. He doesn't just take the burden and the punishment of our record. We take his righteousness. Well, we like to emphasize imputed righteousness and we forget that he took our place literally on the earth, living the life we we couldn't live. As you've said so many times, and I think it's a quote of somebody else, where Adam failed in his garden, Christ was victorious in his. And we have Amen. to we have to dial in on that and focus on that. Absolutely. Which brings us to the next piece, which is his substitutionary death, which is we believe in atonement. We believe in the what's called the penal substitutionary atonement. Um, when he shows up, John sees him and says, behold, the lamb of God. So he doesn't just live the life we should have lived. He dies the death we deserve to die. This was the wrath of God that should have been on us coming down on Christ. 
Some people like to talk about the death of Christ and they don't want to emphasize that it's the wrath of God. But scripture says that the wrath of God abides on us if we don't repent and find forgiveness in the sacrifice of Christ. So the wrath of God is an important doctrine. Well, and I, it's kind of weird to say, and I cannot remember a time in my life that I heard a message on Christ taking the wrath of God, that, that direct subject. It's been alluded wow. to, but this is something we, we have to acknowledge. Uh, when you read in, in Jeremiah, it's Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 51, we see that the wrath of God is often referred to as a cup. Growing up, when I would hear preaching on Christ in the garden saying, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Often that was just being um, attributed to his physical suffering. But if we're going to be consistent with the scripture, we have to understand that it's not the physical suffering that Christ was necessarily, if I can say it this way, most dreading. It was the fact that the whole wrath of God was about to be poured out upon him for the sin of the entire world. And he was going to bear the wrath of God in our place. Yeah, it was cosmic. He experienced cosmic loss and rejection. He says on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? One great preacher once said that throughout all the scriptures you hear Jesus referring to his to God as his father. He always calls him father. The one time he doesn't refer to him as father is in this place. He calls him my God, which is important because he lost in that moment. He lost his relationship bearing the wrath of God. He lost his father so we could call him father. And so he took our place. We have access to God through Christ. And you, I like what you just said. He suffered cosmic loss, but we received cosmic gain mm. and favor and acceptance because of Christ and his, his substitutionary death in our place. And then he who was rich. Yes. For our sake, he became poor that through his poverty, we might be rich. Yes. Amen. Wow. And Christ died and was buried, but three days later, he rose again. Yep. He didn't stay dead. This is the one thing that separates Christianity from every other major religion. Those guys are dead and they're still dead. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This is, and the resurrection cannot be overstated. Paul spends 1 Corinthians 15 going at this issue because it was being debated in the early church. And he says, if you don't believe that he rose, go ask all the people who saw him. There were more than 500 witnesses and most of them are still alive to this day. Which by the way, if you were an early critic or opponent of Christianity, and by the way, there were a lot of those, (laughs) they were a very persecuted religious minority in those days. If you wanted to snuff Christianity out, why wouldn't you just go invalidate those witnesses? So because of this kind of evidence, the manuscript evidence, the eyewitnesses to his resurrected body after his crucifixion and burial, because of this, the resurrection is the central apologetic of Christianity. So you have to contend with his resurrection if you're investigating Christianity. If you're listening today, you're not a Christian. The real question isn't, do I like the Bible? (laughs) The real question is not, do I like the claims of scripture? The real question is, did Jesus rise from the dead or didn't he? Because if he did, he's God. Mm-hmm. And we have to start taking him seriously and everything he said. If he did rise from the dead, then none of it matters. 
Um, C.S. Lewis is actually famous for saying, it can matter not at all, or it can matter all the world. The only thing it cannot do is matter some. Hmm. <laughs> I like that. But it's, but it's so true. The resurrection is our hope. It, the resurrection means for us that we'll be resurrected, that this life isn't the end. Just as it wasn't the end for him, we will be resurrected on the last day. And so th- this is all, we're, we live and die and are going to one day be resurrected with Christ. And that's all goes back to this important doctrine. And so we have a lot of historical events, by the way, that we take absolutely for granted as provable fact that have far less evidence for it than the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. And Paul even said, if Christ be not risen from the dead, we're of all men most miserable. Yes. Most miserable. So Josh, we've talked about all of these doctrines in scripture, the original sin, the substitution by God's grace, but it being temporary and it all pointing to Christ. We talked about who Christ was, his birth, his sinless life, his death on our behalf, his resurrection. What does that mean for us now? Well, to begin with, it means that we're justified, declared righteous by grace through faith, not of works, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to Mm. declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We now before God, in his presence, we stand as righteous. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, it's maybe one of my favorite verses, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I preached a sermon here a couple a couple months ago, the great exchange. Christ took our sin so that we could get his righteousness. Our sin was put on him so his righteousness could be credited to our account. You talk about the craziest deal in all of the world. I'm over here, Josh. Honestly, you're reading all that scripture and I'm fired up, man. <laughs> I mean, think about this. You deserve hell and judgment and separation from God. And Christ comes and stands in your place. And now when God sees you, he doesn't see the 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 wicked sinner that you were. He sees Christ because you're now robed in Christ's righteousness. And now we have a relationship with God that makes us sons and daughters of God. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Yes, grace is so scandalous. It really it, is. It This idea that we're, our salvation is received, not achieved. This is another way that we're so different. Christianity is so different from every other religion that you can study. It's the only one that says the only thing you need is need. Hmm. There's nothing you can bring. Every other religion says, bring this. This is the requirement for you. Every other system depends on you. This is the only one that says, Jesus, his last words on the cross said, it is finished. It wasn't, I'm getting it started roll up your sleeves. It was, it is finished. Um, it's not here are 10 steps to God. It is done. Hmm. That's amazing. It reminds me of what uh, a, a preacher said one time. He was talking to a bunch of men in the Middle East and they were like, we don't understand how your God 
all other gods, you must climb the mountain to get to God. This God that you're talking about, it doesn't make sense. And he explained to them how the difference between Christianity and every other religion is that every other religion, like they said, you have to climb the mountain to God. In Christianity, God came to man because of love, because of grace. And he gave the illustration. He said that when he was getting engaged to his wife, he he didn't send someone else to talk to him about it, to talk to his future wife about it, mm. to to try and propose for him and then be like, all right, now tell her to come find me. No, because in matters of love, he said, one must go himself. And God looked, looked down from heaven at his creation and saw us in this sinful state. And because he loved us so much, he came himself. And on top of that, when we accepted Christ, he was, he didn't just leave us there and turn around and go back. He took us right along with him, gave us his righteousness. And now we stand before God complete in Christ Jesus. C.S. Lewis tells a story that, I mean, if I could just for a moment, bring our attention to just the beauty of God's grace here. He tells a story about a woman who was an author. She was the first female graduate from Oxford University. And she started writing mystery novels. And in her mystery novels, there was this surly old detective who was, you know, just not very nice to be around, but he was really great at his job. And as she went through this series of books, her fans started to tell her, he needs a love interest. You know, they'd reach out to her and send her letters. You got to write him a love story. They realized that what he needed to redeem him out of his personality, out of his serious personal ills was love. Mm. And so she wrote a female character into the story to be the love interest of her primary character. The female character that she wrote in was also a graduate of Oxford, also wrote mystery novels, <laughs> and her readers immediately begin to see she fell in love with her character and she wrote herself into the story. Wow. Just think for a moment about a God who writes a story for us, but we messed up and we were so irredeemable. We, there was nothing we could do to get ourselves out of the mess we caused. And he decided before the foundations of the world, I love my character. Mm. I'm going to write myself into the story and love him and save him from himself. Just give me a minute. I got to go run some laps around the building. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That, this is how amazing God's grace is that he wrote himself, came in, you know, all the questions people have about God. You know what? One thing you can't question, how much he loves us, how That's much he cares. Right. He would never have put himself through that. He never would have come down and gotten in the middle of the mess, except for his great love for us. So the gospel not only justifies us, but the gospel is applicable to our sanctification. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. Like we mentioned earlier, you don't graduate from the gospel. You desperately need the gospel. So the basis of our relationship with Christ is his atonement. It's not our goodness. And, you know, after we get saved, sometimes we start to think, you know, we need to be the person God wants us to be. And the Bible clearly tells us what that looks like. Sometimes we get away from the gospel, like you were just saying. We So we start to fall, to fall short or sin as a Christian, and we try to restore our relationship with God by works. And we try to achieve sanctification by the efforts of our flesh. 
That's not how it works. We don't work our way back. We, in, in the person and work of Christ, we are accepted. So the power of sanctification is still by faith in the finished work of Christ. Somehow, and this is scandalous, it doesn't make sense to our minds, but the thing that truly transforms our hearts and makes us wanna do for Christ is somehow the knowledge that it's already been done. That's what transforms our heart, it's grace. Galatians 2, Paul says this so well. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, it's not me. I have no power to do this of my own. It's all through the power of the gospel and Christ living in me. And a couple of the verses that really emphasize this truth we really love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 when we're talking about salvation, but we need to continue on into verse 10 where it says, for we are his workmanship. We are Christ's workmanship. Yes. It's his work. We're his work created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Yes, certainly we will have evidences and good works in our life because of the change of Jesus Christ, but they are Christ's works in us. Yeah, and so one of the temptations we have as Christians is to revert back to trying to earn our place. So if you couldn't earn your salvation, you can't earn your place in God's family after salvation. And so sanctification is not a work of the flesh, it's a work of the spirit of God in us. Anything positive you do for Christ, it is the work of Christ in you. Christian growth is not possible by the power of the flesh. Second Peter 1, I'll start in verse four, it says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. That's what we're talking about, right? Being sanctified, being partakers of a divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is sanctification. So if you're re- listening to this right now and you're hearing all of these attributes, right? Ah, oh, this kindness and temperance and diligence and virtue and, and brotherly kindness and charity. Yeah, these are all the things that a, a sanctified life looks like. But lest you get tempted to put these all on a list and stick it up on your fridge and think, I'm gonna check these boxes every day and I'm just gonna be this. I'm just gonna pull up my bootstraps and do it. Keep reading. Verse nine says, he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So you see, he's pointing to the gospel as the power for sanctification. He's saying, you don't achieve these things. You don't lack these things because you didn't look at your fridge chore list every morning. He's saying you lack these things because you don't look back to the gospel. You don't look at the finished work of Christ. You don't marvel and and bathe yourself daily in the beauty of the gospel and what Christ has accomplished for you. And so when we're doing that, when we're focused on the gospel and what Christ has completed, all we then have to do is submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and God will grow in us. This is all through the New Testament. Philippians 1 says, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it into the day of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say, (laughs) he which hath begun a good work in you will let you take a good whack at it. Right. Jesus didn't say, I got it started, now you keep it going. No, he said it's finished. 
And so you see this all throughout the New Testament. There's another place that says, for it is, he tells you to work out your own salvation. This is Philippians 2, actually, the very next chapter. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Ah, unless you get hung up, the very next verse says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so the power for sanctification for the Christian is going back to the gospel and the finished work of Christ. So Clay, what is what does this have to do? How is this applicable to our listeners today? Well, it goes back to our mission. The mission of our podcast is to call Christians to committed faithfulness to God's word. We can't do that without focusing on the gospel first. Um, and to challenge churches that, on everything that distracts us from the beauty and glory of Christ. And the glory of Christ is the person and work of Christ. The gospel is the point and it always will be. It's the whole thing. And so to our listeners, if you're saved, Romans says that the power of God is the gospel. It is the power of God. We cannot operate in any other power and have growth and godliness because all you have outside of the gospel is flesh. It's just us and it won't work. Without Christ, we couldn't save ourselves. And so with Christ, all the beauty that there is and all the success there is to have is in the gospel. And if you're listening and you're lost, I just want to take a moment here to say, we've talked a lot about these gospel doctrines. We've talked a lot about what it means for us. Don't get it complicated. It's as simple as putting your faith and trust in Christ through repentance and through simple faith. It's just like the lamb, the innocent substitute took the place of the sinner. That's what Jesus did for us. It's a change of mind, which is what biblical repentance is. That's right. You repent and put your faith and trust in Christ, what he did for you. You can be saved. You can be listening to this podcast right now and can make the decision to put your faith and trust in Christ for forgiveness of your sin. And so to, if you're lost and you're listening, we just wanted to start off with saying, we would love for you to become a part of the family of God. And if you have any questions about anything we've talked about today, please reach out to us. And we'd love to talk to you about it. Amen. Absolutely. Well, Clay, what do you think, man? Jesus is enough. That's what I think. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Young Baptist Pod. And check out our website at theyoungbaptistpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you consume the content and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Young Baptist Podcast.